Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Michael Downey is the president and CEO of Tennis Canada. You can imagine what I spoke with Michael Downey about as Bianca Andrescu won, as we all know in this country and are so immensely proud of, the U.S. Open. Sonia Savage is the Alberta Minister of Energy, and we spoke with the minister about Trans Mountain Pipeline, the extension and the appeals court decision, as well Anthony Farnell, Global News Chief Meteorologist on Hurricane Dorian's assault on Atlantic Canada. Manitobans will be voting on Tuesday in their provincial election from CJOB Radio in Winnipeg, our chorus radio station there. Richard Cloutier brought us up to date on the election. How does it feel to become a member of the Order of Canada? Ron Foxcroft of Hamilton shared those thoughts with us. And the story of the Edwards family. Don and Tannis Edwards were with us in 1991. Don Edwards' mother and father were murdered by a George Lovey who has just been started on a release program. Lovey continues to threaten the Edwards family, and many of you will remember the name Don Edwards. Don was the goaltender for the Buffalo Sabres, the Calgary Flames, Toronto Maple Leafs, and for Team Canada. It's a story that really deserves everyone's attention. So have a listen to the podcast. Sunday edition of the Roy Green Show on uh, the Chorus Radio Network. Hello, everybody. What a terrific uh, weekend, huh? You know what I'm talking about. Yesterday, Bianca in New York and the U.S. Open Tennis Championship. We'll be talking to Michael Downey later on in the hour, the uh, president and CEO of Tennis Canada, about Bianca's victory and what it means to tennis in this country. You know, lots of little kids across Canada now are going to be saying, I want to play tennis. So 10 to 15 years from now, there'll be a surge of uh, additional great young talent representing this country on the international tennis stage. But that was just amazing. Just amazing. And she did it on skills. She did it on youth. And she did it on determination. I never quit, she said. So proud of her. So Michael Downey will be joining us. Uh, We'll also in a few minutes talk to our good friend Michelle Simpson, former liberal member of parliament, who was, of course, the seatmate to Justin Trudeau during question period. And uh, Michelle has, and she's, of course, a member of our Beauties and the Beast panel, Michelle has tweeted out that she cannot and will not vote liberal on the 21st of October. Why? We're going to ask her about that. Uh, There's a whole lot coming up on the show today, many, many issues, and uh, somewhere along the way we'll include some phone calls. We're going to begin, though, with uh, the story of energy, the story of pipelines, specifically Trans Mountain Extension, and uh, this is the story that has galvanized all of Western Canada, particularly the province of Alberta, and really has the attention of the entire country. The issue of pipelines, the issue of energy, the issue of oil, and the proper use of our energy and uh, allowing our economy to flourish and prosper um, by maximizing our energy potential and uh, through pipelines and also taking care of the environment, it can be done, is uh, going to be a cornerstone issue in the election campaign. Now, this week, the Federal Court of Appeal uh, made the decision that uh, 
uh, some of the uh, six of the challenges to the TMX getting started, which the federal government underscored or, or agreed to, are open to appeal. What is interesting to me particularly, and I think to many other people as well, is that the attorney general, the federal attorney general, Mr. Lametti, did not um, engage the uh, the court uh, with proof or federal government position that it did everything it should do, was required to do, in order to get the pipeline construction underway. There was nothing that came out of Ottawa. So the question becomes, again, again, and again, and again, how committed is the Trudeau government to the Trans Mountain Pipeline Extension? And uh, I'm going to put my hand up first if you say to me they're not very committed. Joining us on the program is the Energy Minister for Alberta, Sonia Savage. Minister, thank you very much for the time. Well, thank you for having me today. What do you make of the fact that Mr. Lametti and the federal government and Mr. Trudeau filed no intervention with the Federal Court of Appeal supporting their position that they'd done everything required of them in order to get this construction started? Well, it's, you know, and as you know, Alberta had to step in and fill that void. We filed an application to, uh, to make the arguments that the federal government should have been making. So uh, but I think, you know, if, even if you back up on this pipeline, I've been following it for years, it was filed, the application was filed in 2013, that's six years ago, and it was supposed to be the, through the process and approved by July of 2015. We're now four years later, and the litigation and the court cases started in 2014, and it's been relentless, and it hasn't stopped. Um, you know, there's been climate change challenges to it, that Charter of Rights uh, challenges to it. It's gone on and on and on. And this last piece, like, frankly, this was an easy one for the federal government to step in. All they were, were being required to do is defend their own record. It was for them to step in and said, yes, we did our consultation. We did. We followed the uh, instructions from the last Court of Appeal. Uh, we did this, we did that, we took everything thoroughly. They were just merely defending their own records. So, frankly, it's just it's appalling. It's an abdication of their duty not to have stepped in. What does this do to the relationship between the province of Alberta and the Trudeau government, and then by extension also the, let's say, the other five premiers, uh, conservative premiers in this country, who wrote a letter to the prime minister and said, look, this was on C-69 and C-48, but it all ties together. Uh, there are some, there are some, if not constitutional, then there are some unity issues that are starting to develop here. What has this done? What is all of this doing to the developing uh, or maybe unraveling re- relationship between Alberta and Ottawa? Well, it's certainly keeping going to be keeping the lawyers busy um, when the, the federal government has continued to step across the line into our jurisdiction. Um, into our exclusive constitutional jurisdiction to develop our oil and gas resources over and over again. And uh, at a point, we have to step in and defend that jurisdiction. So uh, I suspect we'll be keeping lawyers pretty busy if we see another uh, term of Justin Trudeau. And, you know, I think it all goes back. Like, there's no question in my mind that they had uh, a one-and-done deal with pipelines starting back in 2016 when they first approved uh, the Trans Mountain Pipeline. And if you remember on that day, that was the same day that they killed and they vetoed Northern Gateway. Um, shortly afterwards, they killed Energy East. They imposed a carbon tax. Uh, 
dealt with Alberta, the former uh, NDP government in Alberta, who put a hard cap on emissions in the oil sands. And just in case any pipeline proponent in Alberta decided to uh, build another pipeline, they gave us C-69 and C-48. So I, I, I think at that time they thought, we'll let one pipeline go through, Trans Mountain, and never again. That was their attitude, and that's what we've seen develop over the last three years. Now I question whether they're even committed to uh, to Trans Mountain. Yeah, and that's a very legitimate question. And we have $4.5 billion of our tax dollars invested in purchasing uh, TMX. Uh, that, that is now the people of Canada's property. And the, uh, the, the Prime Minister has assured that in due time and in the correct way, whatever that means, uh, this this is going to be built, and it is it is a major issue, a major concern. We spoke with the uh, vice chair of TD Bank, Frank McKellar, the former premier of, of uh, New Brunswick, who reminded us uh, last year that they'd done a seven-year study, and they found that this our Canadian economy, and I know this is going to reflect bang on in, in, in Alberta, lost $107 billion just in the discount, uh, the amount of, of, of discount that we sell our oil to the United States to. It's $107 billion just on that one factor alone. So we're talking about, uh, Minister, we're talking about a really significant cornerstone uh, economic, national economic issue, and most certainly the cornerstone issue for the province of Alberta. Well, exactly. It was the issue in our recent provincial election, jobs, economy, pipelines. That was our theme. That's what we ran on, and we're given an overwhelming mandate. Mm -hmm. And here in Alberta, we're doing everything we possibly can to bring back investments, to create that investor confidence, to create jobs, to support our economy. But frankly, like I just don't think the federal government has the slightest clue on what their actions and what their policies are doing to, to undermine investor confidence. They, I don't think they have a clue, or else they don't care. Well, they should, because not so long ago, the Prime Minister received letters from international investors saying we would like to reinvest or continue to invest or resume investing in the energy sector in Alberta. Why don't you make it easier for us? Why don't you do something? Well, and you know what he did after he got that letter? He passed Bill C-69 and he passed no, Bill C-48. Yeah. So I think he's... Uh, I don't think he has a clue. Um, and I, I hope that the economy... Um, our energy sector becomes a frontline issue in the federal election this fall because those jobs, the economy, the energy sector, oil and gas sector, affects the entire country. So I think we need to we need to have a good conversation about that in the election and understand what uh, the Justin Trudeau poli- policies have done to this sector. Couldn't agree with you more. Let me ask you about the. Um, we'll wrap it up with this. Your government is reviewing the energy regulator in the province, and you've basically bidding goodbye to the uh, members of the board. Some of them have decided to leave before you can show them the door. Speak to that, please. Well, sure. So we uh, we announced uh, on Friday that we're opening a review of the AER, the Alberta Energy Regulator. It's been in existence since 2013, so it's a relatively new regulator, and so we're taking a look at the mandate operations the governance of the board, uh, to, to we're, take, we're cracking it open to take a look and see why, why is it that it's taking, the timelines are too long, it's too expensive, it's getting bogged down in red tape. Like, we're, we're, we're taking a real look at the whole foundation to get a sense of, uh, of, of why that is, because we know we need to have a more efficient, 
predictable regulator. Our timelines are longer than Saskatchewan. They're four times longer than in Texas. And we're bleeding jobs to jurisdictions that are that are more competitive. So we're, we're doing everything we can to try to make sure our regulatory framework is in line with our biggest competitors. Minister, thank you for the time. Good talking to you. Well, thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Sonia Savage, the Energy Minister for the province of Alberta. And they have every right to do what they're doing in, in Alberta. And, and the election was won by, uh, by uh, Mr. Kennedy in large part on the promises that they made to, to, to do what they're doing on energy. I know. You'll, if, if you disagree, Roy at RoyGreenShow.com and um, just send me an email. Maybe we'll have time to, to read. If, if you disagree, we may have an opportunity to read one or two emails before the end of the show. That's if you disagree. Joining us on the program, and I'm sure he hasn't gotten a lot to sleep, certainly not last night, is Michael Downey. He's the president and CEO of Tennis Canada. Michael, thank you very much for taking the time. Uh, I, I, I would imagine you didn't get much sleep. Uh, no, not at all, actually. it was. I was lucky enough to be down there and get it live. And uh, we were out last night, and we hooked up with Bianca and, and her team, and it was just very, very special. These are the, these are the type of things that are uh, so special in life, and especially for this young girl who's only 19 years of age. What did she have to say last night, you know, as the victory was sinking in an hour or two or three afterward? Well, it's amazing how, as you said, she just is uh, so together, always. And uh, she was obviously emotionally tired, physically tired, but she had her act together. And I thought all her interviews, she just showed that composure. But, you know, she's always thanking her parents. She thanks Tennis Canada. She thanks the other coaches that are support her through the years. So she's obviously got phenomenally good values because she's so rude in that regard. But uh, And she's looking forward. Like, this is a lady that, uh, while she was obviously taking advantage of the moment and celebrating, she was looking ahead to what's coming down the route because uh, she's now uh, four year-to-date, ranked four in the world year-to-date, and if she stays in the top eight, she'll be competing at the year-end championships in China for another five-and-a-half million U.S. dollars for the winner. Wow. It's amazing. And she would probably go into that tournament as, if not the favorite, one of the favorites. Absolutely. And Serena will be there. She's fifth right now. So uh, it'll be tough competition. But when you've won, you know, I've actually forgotten. I think she's won something like 23 or 24 straight matches that she didn't have to pull out because of injury. And she's something like 45 and four on the year. So there's no doubt she would go into that year-end event as one of the favorites because, uh, well, after beating Serena yesterday, she's now 8-0 and this year against top 10 players, which is just unheard of for someone 19 years of age. It's phenomenal. And when you consider the pressure she would have been under or, you know, you would anticipate she would have been under, certainly over the last four or five days as she went through the quarters and the semis and then the final, for her to be as composed as she uh, is, clearly is, and, and there was something, Michael, that I heard her say, and I'm sure all of us heard it, and, and we're always saying that young people, you know, you, you need to have um, uh, sort of a peer positive influence, and what I heard her say to a reporter, to an interviewer, uh, about herself, I never quit. That, to me, is the essence of Bianca Andrescu. I, it, she, she has the talent, she has the skills, but I never quit told me who she is. 
Yeah, it, it it surely does. She's got unbelievable fight. And uh, but the other thing I think we we need to realize about Bianca, this is a very rooted young girl who's been influenced by her mother and father, but in this case, I think more her mother. Mm -hmm. She's really deeply into meditation. She's really deeply into what she calls visioning. So she knows how to handle these moments because I think she just trains her mind to actually manage the, the, the pressure in a very, very unique way. And uh, there's no doubt we're seeing the results of it on court. You know, we, we, we're told it's the first time that a Canadian has won a slam event. Okay, fair enough. Slam uh, singles. Slam singles. Like, like doubles, Daniel Nestor's won many slam doubles right. titles. So has Gabby Dabrowski in doubles. We've never won a singles Grand Slam. Milos lost the Wimbledon final back in 2006, and Jeannie lost it in or 2016, and Jeannie lost it in 2014, I believe. So Bianca's the first one to win singles in Grand Slam. You know, and, and, and you think about that, but then you also think about it within the context of somebody who a year ago was somewhere around number 200 in the world, and having that short period of time come as far as she's come. I wonder if there is precedent for that. Well, there probably is. If we check the record books, there's probably very few cases where someone has gone from, it was actually worse than 200. It was, you know, probably 250, and now she sits, uh, five in the world, four in the year-to-date race. It is amazing. But I will tell you, she finished last year strong, but it was on the challenger circuit. That's like the, the, the lead-in to the, the WTA event. She mm-hmm. finished strong, she got healthy, and uh, we knew she could start the year off strong, and, and that's what happened. She, she lost in the final in New Zealand, then she qualified in the Aussie Open, won a couple rounds, won a tournament in California, and then won Indian Wells, and we were on our way. But I think one of the key points with this run is not only has she won Indian Wells, she won the Rogers Cup in Toronto, and now she's won the U.S. Open, but she actually missed a couple months of the season with pretty serious shoulder problems. So the fact that she's come back from facing that adversity and winning at this level also just adds to her mystique and she now has a mystique this is a this is a young woman that no one will want to see on their side of the draw in any upcoming uh, uh tournaments you know when you say she she didn't play for three three months um she missed wimbledon entirely right yes she did she missed the entire grass court circuit she played no hardcore events prior to the Toronto Rogers Cup. So she came in. We didn't know until two weeks before the Rogers Cup whether she was going to play. And she actually started rehabbing tennis in what we call kids' tennis with foam red balls. Like when she started two, three weeks before the Rogers Cup, she wasn't really hitting a normal tennis ball. Uh, it just shows again the the resiliency of this young woman. Yeah, I was wondering. I mean, just sort of thinking uh, uh, off the cuff here. Had she been well enough to participate at Wimbledon, she might have won that one too. Absolutely. Like there's there's no doubt about it because of her record. Like when you're 45 wins and four <laughs> losses, that's incredible. You know, she has more hard court wins than any other WTA player this year. So there's no doubt because she's won all these back-to-back tournaments, she easily, not easily, she would have been a favorite for Wimbledon as well. She would have been a favorite for Roland Garros, but she ended up pulling out in the second, um, her second match because her shoulder was aching. 
Now, what does this do for for, can, for tennis in Canada? I would imagine that starting, if not already, then starting tomorrow, there's going to be a lineup of kids all across the country wanting to start playing tennis. Absolutely. like, And it's been happening all, you know, it, we're lucky enough to be part of a sport that has been growing by double digits over the last 10 years anyway. And it has a lot to do with the inspiration that Milos Ronich, Jeannie Bouchard, Vasek Pospisil, Dennis Felix, Daniel Nestor, like the bevy of Canadians doing well in international is what's driving the inspiration, which convinces people to uh, become fans and then hopefully pick up a racket. But there's no doubt the fact that she's won the U.S. Open, it will take it to another level. You know, I was driving back uh, in a cab from the airport today, and you see all the newspaper stands, and they've got a front picture. You know, the Toronto Star said Queen B today. The coverage is going to be immense, and that all that's going to do is ignite a ton of young young women, young girls, probably some young boys that want to be Bianca. And they're going to say, Dad and Mom, can we go out and get a racket and hit a ball? Or if I'm already doing it, the weather's good today, can we go to a park court? And, and we know that happens. This is why we invest as an organization in high performance, because results at the highest level are the best marketing to get people to play the sport. It wasn't so long ago, Michael, that if Canada, when Canada was participating in the Davis Cup, if we got through the first round, or if we showed reasonably well in the first round, we were thinking pretty good. Absolutely, and times have changed now. Well, big like, time. On the men's side, we're going to Madrid in November at the World Championships. We're one of 18 countries. We have a decent chance. Like, you know, when you've got Felix and Dennis and Milos and Vasek on your team, if they're all healthy and they're all ready, we have a chance to create some damage there. And that, that wouldn't have happened 10 years ago because you've got to have depth to win these team events. And we, we're seeing it now on the Fed Cup side, on the women's side. Like, we'll compete against Switzerland in Switzerland in February. It'll be a rematch of Bianca versus Benchik, the young lady that she beat in the semifinals. And, and we're getting the depth there with Gabby Dabrowski and the young girl from Montreal, Layla Fernandez, more than capable of playing on the Fed Cup level. So it's going to be very exciting on the team side because I really do believe in the next few years, Canada can, could win Davis Cup and could win Fed Cup. And I will say, I was lucky enough, I was leading British tennis three year, four years ago uh, when Britain won Davis Cup. And it is magical what it can do to inspire a nation. So we've seen it with Bianca winning the U.S. Open yesterday. I think that Davis Cup and Fed Cup are coming down the route. But you know what? There's another slam in Australia for all these Canadians to compete at, and one in France in, in May and one in Wimbledon in June. It's going to be a circuit because the reality is they're young. Felix is 19, Bianca is 19, and Dennis is only 20, being the elder statesman of that young breed <laughs> coming up. Well, what's so remarkable uh, about uh, Bianca, let me come back to her and finish up with her, Michael, is that she's also, from what we can see, from what we gather, from what we hear, from what we know, a really good person, too. Absolutely. This is a, you know, we talked about her composure, but I would also say her values are, are just immense. And it comes from her the way she's been raised. Her parents are demanding, as they should be, because they want the support uh, for, for Bianca, especially to make sure she can face uh, a risk of injury. But they're reasonable, and that's Bianca. And uh, she's just so rooted. You know, at the end of the day, she lives, she lives in Vaughan with her parents. 
They're very close family unit, and she's just a joy to actually work with, and our coaches would say that. And quite frankly, I would say her parents are, are very easy to work with as well because we know they're committed to her, but they're also reasonable. Well, thank you for joining us, and thank you as well, and congratulations to everyone, to you and everyone at Tennis Canada, because you're the ones who are leading the effort. You're the ones who are doing a lot of the legwork and, and are the structure behind the, uh, the, the players. And now we're going to see more and more victories, which is going to get the whole country energized. So great job on everybody's behalf. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you for the accolades, but there's a lot of other people across Canada that contribute to the success of these young players. We're more of a facilitator, and I want to make sure the credit is given to, to a wide group of people. Thank All right. you. Thank you for the time today. Bye. Michael Downey, the uh, President and CEO of Tennis Canada. We're joined again by Anthony Farnell, Chief Meteorologist for Global News. He joins us from Halifax. First of all, Anthony, how are you? Yesterday at this time, it was quite the storm for uh, residents here in Halifax and surrounding areas, uh, but thankfully it was a quick mover, and now it's out over Newfoundland and headed into the Atlantic. Well, you sounded yesterday like you were underwater. I was starting to worry about you. Yeah, apparently uh, iPhones and salt water don't mix very well. We just come back into the hotel lobby and uh, trying to get things to work. But that is uh, something, as I've covered a few of these hurricanes, you just got to roll with the punches. And uh, we dried out, took a while, but uh, we're doing better overall. And I think the morale, as far as people go throughout the Maritimes, a lot better now that the sun is shining and those winds have diminished. Tell us what, uh, what in fact took place at its worst, what was it like, and ultimately, what's the what's the damage situation well, at its worst, winds were gusting 100 to 140 kilometers per hour, which uh, can do a lot of damage uh, for any city. But here in Halifax particularly, we have such uh, old trees, and it's really one of the, the most forested uh, metropolitan areas in Canada. And these trees have very shallow roots. So when those winds gusted right before the center of the storm moved in, uh, we could hear uh, well, them crashing all over the place. And then the eye moved overhead, and that was surreal and then the backside and the winds picked up again and that temperature dropped into the single digits at night which is something that uh, you don't think of when you're when you're covering hurricanes and you say the situation is improving now the, uh, the 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 storm is gone at least at least as far as the weather's concerned things are improving Things are definitely improving as far as the weather goes. Uh, that system is now far away. The rain was heavy. It washed out some roads outside of the city as well. But the big, big problem right now is that power grid that is uh, crippled across Nova Scotia. At the heart of the storm, 80% of the entire province without power. That number is going down, but uh, there's still some 4,000 individual outages. And first things first, they need to get the arborists, the crews in there to get rid of the trees from the lines. And then uh, there are several poles that snap that need to be re-put in. And then you can start laying new wire. And, of course, uh, certain streets, certain neighborhoods take priority. But uh, some of the rural areas outside of Halifax, they're not talking hours or days. It may be up to a week or more where uh, they're going to be in the dark and, and likely need to get some help somewhere. What about uh, transportation, like air transportation? Are people uh, have family in, uh, in Atlantic Canada, may expect them to be returning, or they want to go to Atlantic Canada. How is that going along? 
Well, it's, it's much better. Uh, after a storm, when the airport basically shuts down, you, you have those general delays, uh, but things are getting back to normal. I, I hope so. I'm, I'm flying out back to Toronto coming up here uh, tomorrow morning. But uh, yeah, there were definitely delays all across the region. And uh, those planes are having to get in if they maybe flew out ahead of the storm. So uh, today was a bit of a chaotic scene early on. But everybody's understanding. And that is something that has been remarkable. The Maritimers that are just helping out their neighbors and just smiling even as they're waiting an hour and a half to get a coffee at Tim Hortons, the one Tim Hortons <laughs> that was open in town. The uh, the traditional Atlantic Canadian friendliness. And it helps at, at all times. <laughs> Anthony, thank you very much for the report. And the yes. hardiness, the fact that these... Oh, no problem, Roy, but uh, the fact that these these guys have been dealing with these storms and, and they just take it in stride, and it's something I guess we all can learn a little bit from. Yeah, so we're uh, thanks for the update yesterday and today. I'm glad that, the, uh, that you're in better situation than you were 24 hours ago. We'll talk again. Thanks, Anthony. All right, thanks, Roy. Richard Cloutier joins us. He's back on the program with us, co-host of News on 680 CJOB, and senior reporter for Global News from Winnipeg. Richard, thanks so much. 48 hours away from the Manitoba provincial election. Is a Pallister majority likely again? That's all the predictions, Roy. Great to be with you again. That uh, Brian Pallister, even though he's gone on and acknowledged that he's not necessarily the most popular premier, certainly not as popular as his NDP predecessor, Greg Selinger, or when he first got elected, and certainly not as popular as Gary Dewar was, even at the end of his mandate, Brian Pallister is poised to repeat as Premier of Manitoba. The big question is, is that will it be a record-setting majority government? They won 40 seats last time around in 2016. They've made some pretty dramatic changes in health care, certainly here in the city of Winnipeg, and that's been the battleground during this entire election campaign, Winnipeg, We'll see whether or not this turns into a bit of a referendum on those health care changes, or is it simply, as Brian Pallister puts it to the people, we've made some progress on eliminating some of the, the mistakes of the NDP government. Uh, we got to keep on going to right the ship here in uh, the central part of Canada. So, Rich, how, uh, how significant uh, is the Winnipeg vote itself? How much depends on how Winnipeg votes? As Winnipeg votes, uh, we have the majority of the 57 seats in the Manitoba legislature here in Manitoba. The progressive conservatives are strong in the capital region and essentially outside of uh, the city of Winnipeg. I always look at this as you can draw a line from Dauphin, Manitoba, in the western part of Manitoba, right through Winnipeg, right through to the Steinbeck area towards the Canada-U.S. border. On the north side of that line, has traditionally been NDP territory on the south and to the west of that line has been more of the vote-rich, seat-rich, progressive conservative territory as well. And along that line are the swing ridings. Back in 2016, the progressive conservatives won pretty well all those ridings. The New Democrats are trying to win some of those ridings back. At Disillusion, they had 12 seats. Back in the, uh, in the Gary Dewar days, they were able to make inroads um, where the progressive conservatives uh, were able to take back those seats and then grow their seats. Uh, we'll see whether or not that actually stands on Tuesday. So the, is the feeling then that there's going to be a, a Pallister uh, return uh, and a progressive conservative uh, government return in Manitoba, maybe not with the uh, overwhelming majority they had in 16? 
Yeah, and the, the, the controversial health care moves have been front and center in this campaign, as well as a real concern about crime and safety right. and the meth crisis in Winnipeg. But in the northern and the northeast part of our city, they converted two of the hospital emergency rooms into urgent care. Uh, earlier on in the mandate in the south end of our city, they converted one of those emergency rooms into an urgent care center. And Winnipeg, although it's a big city, it's a community of neighborhoods, and a lot of the people in those neighborhoods have felt that suddenly their health care has changed as a result. It hasn't. Pallister was brave, and he called himself, and he accepts the moniker that we dubbed him the Tough Love Premier, making some decisions, some generational health care decisions, that if they're returned to office on Tuesday, and that's a likelihood that they're going to extend a lot of those reforms to rural Manitoba. It's interesting that you, uh, you know, they, they we're talking health care, because when I think of the emails that I receive from listeners in Manitoba, and uh, specifically listeners who are from Winnipeg, uh, a majority of the emails over the last year, year and a half, I think have had to do with, with health care and health care questions and challenges, with I tried to get, you know, the, the help I needed, and I had a tough time getting it done. Yeah, and we've been last in a lot of the, the Canadian Institute of Health Information uh, metrics. We've been near the bottom or at the bottom of the list, despite the fact that we spend a lot of money per capita on health care in Manitoba. So Pallister looked at reports that had been filed even 20 years ago, but most recently by the last NDP government and said, you know what, we're going to act on it. We're going to redesign our health care system to have three strong hospitals, three strong emergency wards. And as a result, in the last year, we've kind of suffered those growing pains. And here on the eve of the election, Global News, we had a story saying that there was almost mayhem at three of the emergency rooms because a computer system went down. So, yeah, we all understand the problems with health care. And what Pallister is saying is that uh, this tough level approach is going to require some patience because it may get a little bit worse. It's improved somewhat, according to some lists, but it may get a little bit worse before it gets better. Okay, and it all depends on which spelling of the word patience we use, right? It does. It does indeed. And I'll be interested to see the turnout because last time around it was 56 okay. percent. And I think there's a distrust in government that we see from coast to coast and internationally. So I'll be really interested to see whether or not we hit that 50 percent mark on Tuesday. That's a good point. And let me ask you this final question. Is, the, is there a, a, an overlap possibility here between what happens in Manitoba on Tuesday and what voters decide in Manitoba on Tuesday? Do you think there's a uh, a message that can be sent or received that will apply perhaps in some way to what will happen federally on the well, 21st of October? It's an interesting question because already in some of the writings we're seeing the uh, the oil campaign and the big billboard ads, the local candidate in the south part of Winnipeg, Terry Duguid and uh, Pierre, uh, Pierre uh, Justin Trudeau, and, and, you know, vote them out. So there is a little bit of voter confusion at that point when you talk about the fact that in some cases, they're getting two pamphlets from different candidates, one federal, one provincial. So does that translate into a, a solid signal? We'll see come uh, come Tuesday. I'm not sure. I think people who are paying attention to it very closely know the difference. But again, I'm wondering whether or not we're going to get that 50% mark simply because it's been a sleepy summer campaign and all the polls have predicted a majority government for Brian Pallister's and his progressive conservatives. Okay, I do have one more question. Uh, if it's not a majority government Oof. for Pallister, what's likely to happen? What, 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 what would it look like and what are the ramifications if it's not a majority government for the, for the Pallister party? Well, I'll, I'll tell you right now, there are cabinet ministers that are quietly wondering if, because of the early call, 
that Brian Pallister wants to get out sooner rather than later. There's always been controversy that he spent a lot of his vacation time at a very beautiful home in Costa Rica. They would be saying, Mr. Pallister, it's time to make that your retirement home. Because uh, the expectation here is that they're going to lose a few seats on Tuesday. But if they lose enough that the Liberals or the Greens become the balance of power here, uh, the, the very quiet conversation that's going on will get a whole lot louder and there'll be pressure on Pallister to go very soon. And if that happens, Rich, you know that conversation's going to be heard from coast to coast to coast. Absolutely. Well, and right here on the Ray Green Show. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the time, my friend. Good talking to you always. Great to talk to you. Bye-bye. Rich Cloutier, Richard Cloutier, who is co-host of News on 680 CJOB in Winnipeg and senior reporter, Global News from Winnipeg. It is a, it is a very... Uh, the word interesting is the first one that sort of wants to roll off your lips, but it's far more than interesting. It is a, um, it's a table setting, if I'm using that properly, election time or time in our, in our, in our country and, and internationally, because the numbers that we talked about with Daryl Bricker yesterday from Ipsos on the poll that has to do with Canada, this was an international poll. But the Canadian numbers and all the people in the developed world countries that participated were asked the same questions. But in this country, 52% believe our society is broken. And I'm still interested to know what people mean when the point is made that society is broken. 28% neutral on that. Uh, How can you be neutral on it? 19% disagree, 1%, the usual 1% to 3% don't know. 61% traditional political parties and politicians don't care about people like me. 61%, that number could be much higher, really could be much higher. 24% neither agree nor disagree. These are the Canadian numbers, of course. The Canadian economy is rigged to advantage the rich and the powerful. 67% say, yep, that's the way it is. 21% are neutral. 10% disagree. Three don't know. So there are uh, some other numbers here, and I don't know where they went. Hold on. Shuffling paper madly, trying to find what I've got. Uh, Here's the other one. Immigrants take important social services away from real Canadians. 41% agree with that. 34% disagree. 22% are neutral and 2% don't know. And that's the populism issue. And uh, when we spoke with uh, Daryl Bricker yesterday, as, as you heard, he said the numbers in Canada are far more... Um, um, far less, I don't use the word radical, but uh, emphatic maybe, that's the word that might apply, far less emphatic in this country than they are in other countries like the UK or maybe Germany, and particularly, he mentioned France. So if the, uh, the expectation is to receive the Order of Canada, you love your country and you do a lot for your people, the people of the country, if that's the expectation... My friend Ron Foxcroft has met it many, 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 many times. Order of Canada inductee on Thursday joins us on the program today. Fox, I'm sorry to take so long. I had to tell that one story. There's so many I could tell. What's it like? What's it like to be informed that you're going to be uh, become a member of the Order of Canada? What's it like? Well, when the phone call comes in, Roy, quite frankly, you are shocked, surprised, and can't believe it. And so much so. 
when I got the phone call, the phone call came from an area code 613, and I asked the lady two questions. I said, is this the CRA, or <laughs> have you made a mistake and got the wrong guy? And honestly, Roy, I, I was stunned, uh, just completely stunned, and she said to me, no, sir, really, this is the real thing, and while we're talking, I'll send you an email. And she did, and I saw the email, and I saw the uh, the signature underneath from the governor general's office, and I thought, oh, boy, oh, boy. And, and Roy, it takes you a long time to recover. Honestly, surprise, uh, shock, uh, you really do think that they've got the wrong person. Well, they got the right person, and uh, and and you've already met with the with the Queen here with Buckingham Palace. You met the, with the Queen, so you know how things go in in these incredible places and organizations. But what's the schedule like when you arrive in Ottawa for the the ceremony and the post ceremony activities and pre ceremony activities? What's the schedule like? Well, I got to tell you this. I got to give credit to our government. the uh, The preparation, the follow up, the communication from the governors. Governor General's office, uh, Julie Payette, was absolutely sensational. They laid it out in uh, correspondence actually to the minute. So you you had a pretty good idea what was going to happen, although, you know, going to Rideau Hall is uh, very emotional, very overwhelming. And, And I'll tell you how you feel when you walk in there. You feel Canadian. You feel really proud to be a Canadian, and uh, I'll, I'll tell you what the great emotion for me was. Uh, my my family sacrifice, Roy, I, I'm a pro basketball referee and run a little business, and of course I hadn't been home on a Saturday night in 25 years. So my family have sacrificed an awful lot. And going into Rideau Hall to meet Julie Payette uh, for the Order of Canada with your family, that is the key. You're with your family. You feel Canadian. And you know, Roy, you, your your heart is, is throbbing, and you just say to yourself, Canada is the best country in the world to work, live, and play. Very emotional feeling, but you share it with your family. My friend, thank you for joining us, and uh, congratulations on the uh, on the Order of Canada induction uh, you've earned it. You've earned it so many times, so many different ways. You've done so much for this country and for, for the people of Canada. You deserve it. Thanks, Ron. Roy, you deserve it, too, and you should be nominated. Thank you for having me on your show. You take care. Okay. Ron Foxcroft, Order of Canada, and to all the inductees into the Order of Canada, congratulations. That's an amazing, amazing award. I, uh, I, I've, in a way, I've dreaded uh, airing this segment because, well, you'll understand as we go through it. Uh, Don Edwards, uh, the name will be familiar to many people. And yes, he's the former Buffalo Sabres, Calgary Flames, and Toronto Maple Leafs, and Team Canada goaltender. And, and Don's parents, uh, Donna and Arnold Edwards, were murdered in 1991 by George Lovey of Hamilton, Ontario. Lovey had been dating Don's sister, Michelle, who wanted to end the relationship. And uh, Lovey then stalked Michelle, who alleged and still does that Lovey raped her in her home several weeks prior to the murders. Uh, The Crown never brought the rape charges. That's still a contentious point. 
On March 21st of 1991, Michelle Edwards was leaving her home when George Lovey appeared from under her porch with a powerful hunting rifle and a large knife. Uh, Michelle was in terror, and uh, she ran to her parents' home with Lovey following, chasing her. And Donna and Arnold Edwards attempted to keep Lovey out, but he broke into the house where he shot and killed uh, Mrs. Edwards and plunged the knife into the chest of Mr. Edwards, repeating, uh, how do you like me now? Lovey was convicted of two counts of first-degree murder and one count of attempted murder. Uh, he was not charged with raping Michelle Edwards. George Lovey has threatened the Edwards family, and they fear that threat today. Uh, Lovey has just been granted the beginnings to his freedom and will be moving or already has moved to a Sudbury, Ontario halfway house on day parole. That day parole is going to be reviewed in six months, and full parole hearings will follow. Don Edwards and his wife, Tannis, as well as Michelle and other members of the Edwards family were present and were instructed on how their victims' impact statements could be uh, 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 delivered, instructed by the parole board, and they were ordered to remove certain passages or the board would redact what they didn't like. I've known the Edwards family since those days in Hamilton in the early 1990s and served on the board of the National Victims' Rights Organization, caveat uh, with Don and Michelle Edwards' sister, Jessie. Former Alberta prosecutor Scott Newark has also known and provided support and advice for the Edwards family for many years. He's the former head of the Ontario Government Office for Victims of Crime. The Edwards family is determined to fight the release of George Lovey and challenges the manner in which the parole board has behaved and treated the victims of George Lovey's murderous assault. They join us, uh, Don and Tannis Edwards, uh, join us on the program. How are you? Don We're Tannis, hanging no. in there, Roy. Um, it was, uh, we've uh, been, uh, it's been a bit of a setback, a good body blow, um, but uh, it wasn't a surprise uh, considering the past performance of the parole board. Okay. Tannis, how are you doing? Thank you, Roy. Um, following up to this, uh, the last two parole hearings that were within six weeks of each other, um, we had, it was a constant fight to get our words um, on paper and our voice heard as they were monitoring uh, everything that they wanted us to say. So they're determined to, uh, Lovey's going to get out, and they were determined that you weren't going to be able to say what you wanted to say, needed to say. Your victim's impact statement was impacted by the parole board, right, Don? Absolutely, Roy. Um, they asked us to redact uh, statements. My statement had factual information from previous uh, parole board decisions. And on top of that, in, in, uh, in addition to that uh, factual information, uh, they also, because of the length of my statement, which was all factual, it was all uh, based on my experiences, on my uh, PTSD and other things that I had experienced in being you know, the first one in the home and whatever else may be. But it was, it was interesting when we um, submitted the, um, the statements, uh, uh, Carrie Guten, who is the parole regional communications officer, came back to us after meeting with the two parole members that were going to be in the room, uh, came back to us and that said we had to redact. And this is just one of the statements I'll read to you that they asked us to redact. And this was in my closing statement at the end. And, I, and let me read this just to you. It's very brief. In closing, 
as I stated moments earlier, which also applies to the Parole Board of Canada, in George Harding Lovey's forensic examination and assessment, there simply can be no shortcut or quick summary, unanswered question or error, failed examination or in-depth review, botched oversight or omission, reason for doubt or uncertainty, intention of immunity or sanctuary, no urgency or timeline, no schedule or compelling deadline. The Parole Board of Canada, the two members, viewed that as a threat to them and to the caseworker. And basically what that statement says is, I'm asking for accountability of the caseworker and the Parole Board of Canada. And you were ordered to change that or, or drop it entirely. That is correct. I was, asked, I was ordered to redact that or my, I was not allowed to read my victim impact statement. Okay, I'm going to bring Scott Newark in in just a second. I just want to get this one point out. Your family, Don and Tannis, your family yes. is still afraid of Lovey because he's threatened you all, right? Yes, and he's threatened our children. Yes, absolutely. He he is not finished. Mm-hmm. He's had he's had a long time to to make his his uh, next plan. Yeah. If you recall back to the trial, Roy, his sister Carrie Lovey got on 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 the she went to the stand and she said in testimony that he also uh, threatened to kidnap and kill the grandchildren of Arnold and Donna Edwards, which is of course our parents and our children. So. Um, it was, you know, and, and cut them up and mail them home. So, I mean, if you don't think that's a threat, and, in, and even up until the last hearing, which was just recently on August 27th, he also continues to blame Michelle and the Edwards family for his rage and terror that occurred on March 21st, 1991. Okay, let me bring Scott Newark into this. Well, there's a, a number of things. I've reviewed some of the materials, and there's a, an important point I want to make right off the top because you misstated something. In fact, uh, Lovey was actually charged with the sexual assault of Michelle. He was released on bail, okay? And what happened is that when he was convicted of the murder, well, it sounds to me, I don't know, but it sounds like, you know, a well-intentioned prosecutor said, well, he's got life sentences, so let's spare the victim the trauma of having to go through this. And so the charges uh, were not proceeded with. But it is really important to remember the police decided that they had reasonable grounds to lay the charge, so they did. The Crown approved it being done. So that's relevant, and you know whether or not there was a conviction, to pretend that there was no factual basis, and, and, and don't forget, this attack was a revenge for that, which actually Lovey hasn't even entirely denied. So for the parole board to stick its head in the sand and say, oh, well, you know, we can't consider that, is... I think just a, a sign of a systemic uh, dysfunctionality. And as uh, Don was mentioning in relation to their censoring of the uh, victim impact statements, I mean, the fact of that even being done, I think, would probably surprise most people. Uh, you know, uh, and I mean, as, as you know, uh, I was involved in getting the laws changed so that victims could actually make statements. And uh, it reads like. Uh, and I and I get this sense. It reads as though you know there was um, this this thing was the decision making process was rigged. That Correctional Service of Canada had made their decision that he was going to get out. In fact, an earlier decision that disallowed uh, day passes was overturned by the appeal board, and the those parole board members that made that decision got replaced by other ones. 
Okay, and so it was this this feeling as I've read the materials, it feels almost like a, a, a rubber stamp process, including incredibly, okay, that none of what I just described about the sense of this being a revenge motivated uh, killing, planned and deliberate. The guy went out and bought a gun. He got special, you know, bullets. Did all of this stuff that they didn't consider this, which is obviously relevant in relation to a future risk that may be posed. And equally, one of the things that they ordered the family to remove, remove from their victim impact statement was something that happened, you know, and it was reported in a previous uh, report when he was applying for parole, that he had, in effect, made threatening statements to a female internal uh, institutional parole officer, and he sub- and, and which she felt were threatening. And he subsequently went, oh, I just misspoke. Okay, and the final thing for me is I've just been going through this is uh, again something that the board took no notice of or no um, uh, you know uh, official recognition of is that this guy actually lied because he said that the two locations that he was he wanted to go to Sudbury or Peterborough that he had the support of their local police services and that's a flat out lie. Look, people <laughs> lie for a it's reason. Totally and I find it lie. astounding that the parole okay. board didn't look at this and say, what's going on here with this guy? Why is he doing this? People lie for a reason. Let me take a break. We'll come back, and I know that uh, Don and Tannis want to respond to uh, what Scott has said. We'll have them talk to each other. And fundamentally, just think about having your having a parole board tell you how long your victim's impact statement can be and what can be in your victim's impact statement. It's not the first time we've heard this, so it's institutionalized. They're doing this. And, and remember, George Lovey threatened... The Edwards family, um, he, he's still, I don't know how anybody would say he's not still a danger. We'll come right back. We're back with uh, Don and Tannis Edwards and Scott Newark, former prosecutor, and uh, Don and Tannis, as you know, uh, are battling the release of uh, George Lovey, who murdered Don's parents. Uh, Don Tannis, you've listened to Scott. I know the things you want to say. Please go ahead. Yes. Um, one of the first things that is so important when I know Scott's read the, the decisions uh, over the past couple uh, parole hearings in 2017 when George Lovey appealed is when his UTAs were denied. Suzanne Poirier, who was the parole board member who was sitting in on the appeal of that, was the lead in that um, process, Roy. And then her questioning to Lovey uh, in the in the examination, she did never she never referred to the the rape and assault. It was she always referred to it as being uh, charges irrelevant because the the, the uh, charges were stayed. Now let me just say this: she granted Lovey the UTAs in 2017. We went into this recent hearing after the July 9th hearing that was a split decision. When we went in on August 27th. The, the lead um, member of the parole board, again, was Suzanne Poirier, and it was as if the decision was already made before we walked in. There was an attitude. There, there, there was arrogance. Uh, before we got there, they were condescending uh, with our, and as if they were bullying us and with these statements, you know, what we had you know, presented and were about to read. Um, and it was very interesting because when it came to our statements, we read, which were redacted, the portions, you know, we had to redact the statements. When the questioning came to Lovey in this hearing, 
Um, in, in 217, she referred to nothing about the rape and assault, but this time, in 219, uh, she did a, um, uh, address the rape and assault, and it, it was almost as if there, it was humorous. Her questions were weak, and when I say weak, I mean very, very weak. And when we, when uh, there was two reporters there, one was from the Sun Media Group, the other one was from the Athletics. And when we walked out, I asked them both. I said, "Did you find? Did you sense that the decision was made before we even walked in to the hearing?" And they both said immediately, "We've never been to a parole hearing, but we honestly feel that that decision was made before this parole hearing ever started." So. It was almost as if the Edwards family uh, bled their hearts out reading victim impact statements. I'm very proud of all my family members that were there that continued throughout this thing to read very emotional victim impact statements. But I will say this in the most uh, sincere way. That decision was made long before we walked into that. And it was almost like it was a waste of time for us. And they don't like, they don't, they don't like Don and Tennis, right? They don't like the fact that you're actually speaking about this publicly no no they don't and they've indicated to us in an email afterwards that whatever we quoted to the media was incorrect and they have just been really condescending and we feel like they we're like in grade school and they're the principal and they're telling us what to do and what to say and i i totally believe and so does john that they want us to kind of give us a couple of weeks and they think that we're going to kind of just go away, that we're going to get tired of, of talking about it and fighting about it. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not, it's not the case. I'm, we are going to be adamant that we stay on this and someone needs to answer our questions. We need to know where to go. I will say this too, uh, uh, you know, Roy, is that, you know, the, 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 with, the, with no appeal process for victims and we have no rights. I mean, uh, th- those we, we have no exa- uh, rights. Our rights are exhausted, and there are no rights to appeal any of the decisions by the parole board or anything else. Um, Scott and I talked the other day, and it was interesting. He's been sent to St. Leonard's in Sudbury, and as Scott will mention here, you know, it, it, it really is the St. Leonard's is a religious society which is under contract with Corrections Canada and are paid by Knights of Stay. And, you know, it's a, it's a situation that the parole board and, and the, the Corrections Canada are almost in bed together, and the, 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 um, the, uh, the process is, is also condescending on how it should be done. Okay. Because Don, the school board should be completely separate of it all. And I'll let Scott speak about this. I've only got, we've only got about two minutes left. Scott, go ahead. What, what do you uh, want to say to exactly this? That's exactly it. The, our system is based on the notion that the parole board is independent of Correctional Service of Canada, and not simply a rubber stamp. And you and I have spoken about that over the years, Roy. Yes, we have. And recently about a bad feeling that that is coming back as well, too. Yep. And I think this case reflects that. The other thing, is, uh, as Don mentioned, is that this guy's not going to a Correctional Service of Canada facility. It's to a private facility run by the St. Leonard Society. I've been doing some digging around and checking out. Uh, there is a contract. The uh, Correctional Service of Canada website is not up to date. On the, I was looking to try to see the terms because I can. Uh, I bet you in the contract there is a legal obligation on them to report any breach to Correctional Services of Canada, and that should be confirmed to them that you know we know about that, and also to Correctional Services of Canada, so that the. Uh, if, if this guy does breach his conditions, it's reported, and they have the lawful authority to bring him back into jail where he belongs. Is there any chance... Now, you also mentioned about monitoring. 
Yeah. Scott, can you mention about monitoring? Yeah, absolutely. Monitoring Once again, we, we worked hard to change the laws to put electronic monitoring in as an authorized condition. We got it done. But guess what? It can only be done, and it wasn't in this case, but it can only be done if Correctional Service of Canada asks for it. And it wasn't done in this case. Don't you think maybe with a guy like this, with these kinds of risks, that should be there so we can put in a, you know, a perimeter area where he can't leave? At the very least. And no kidding. Uh, absolutely, and and no no conditions to that nature whatsoever. But his risk management and how he's going to live, he's going to live on one hundred and thirty dollars a month from um, the the government, and he thinks he can live off of that. I want to be able to not work and live off one hundred and thirty dollars a month and think my life is great. I'm going to just jump in here because uh, for on this occasion. We've we've used our allotted time. I've, the show's over, but I, we'll talk again for sure. Don, Tannis, your family have have gone through absolute agony at the hands of of George Lovey, and now the system is protecting him and indifferent to you. That's the only way that I can interpret this. We'll stay in touch. Uh, they think you're going to go away. I know you will not. And uh, thankfully, we also have we have Scott Newark to work for victims of crime and. Uh, Scotty, you're the best. We'll uh, do everything we can. Okay. Thank you, Don. Thank you, Tannis. We'll stay in touch. Thanks. Thank, Thank you, you Roy. Thank really you. appreciate it. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.